sound crazy, but what's that thing called when you owe money on a house, it starts with an M? Mortgage. Mortgage. Is it possible to be this tired? You know what? I'm going to get up with him tonight. No, you won't. You don't hear him. Yeah, you're right. Why? I'm just a blessedly sound sleep. I, I do have to go into the office tomorrow, though. Will you watch him then for me? It would be my pleasure. How long are we talking about? <laughs> not, not quite what you expected, huh? I don't know what I expected. I never thought Morley would seem like the easy one. I know. I know, but you know what? I'm adjusted to him. I'm adjusted to the baby. I'm just trying to remember us from before. You mean those uh, the younger? Yeah. Sexier, better looking people? Yeah. I remember them. I remember them vaguely. I know. miss them. Hmm, they're here. They're here, they're just really tired. Mm -hmm. Wow, can you relate to that? You know, uh, as a parent, uh, even even at the point where my uh, I'll have a son uh, that's a junior and a son that's a senior, there are still times that I think as a parent, I'm not ready for this. And uh, I think, boy, I, I don't sure I really know what I'm doing at this. I mean, can you relate to that at all? Uh, there are a lot of emotions that we feel as parents, aren't there? I think there are feelings of fear at times and apprehension and anxiety there are feelings of this overwhelming responsibility that we have taken on, just a plethora of emotions that we experience as parents. And sometimes there are things that happen that make it very, very real to us, aren't there? I, uh, Tom uh, Helsing, an author, writes about this uh, story of a dad. His dad was at a, like a picnic, and uh, he went through the line to fix his sandwich, his food, and you know he fixed a nice ham sandwich with cheese, and they had some of that a light brown gourmet mustard, and he spread that on his sandwich, and uh, it just looked great. He couldn't wait to eat it, and so he goes to his place at the picnic table, and he's just ready to launch into that food, and his wife comes along with their six-month-old and says, here, will you hold the baby? And he says, well, sure. But he says, the sandwich is so enticing, and so he thinks, well, you know, maybe if I hold on to the baby like this, I can eat it with one hand, and he notices that he has some mustard on his finger, and so he goes to lick it off, and guess what? It wasn't mustard. Yeah, so he... Seriously, he went running to the bathroom as fast as he can, you know, got rid of the kid, washed off his mouth, you know, took a towel and like dried off his tongue. I mean, it was nasty. Later, his wife said to him, that's why they call it Poupon mustard. Yeah, pretty sad, huh? I uh, read this week the USDA has uh, just last year did a study about the, how much it costs to raise a child. They discovered that a median income family from the time a child is born until they are 18 years of age, that it costs $290,000 to raise the child. That does not include college. Unbelievable, isn't it? Uh, Dan, who plays the bass here, who's our, on our staff, has five kids. He was a little overwhelmed by that figure. He could have been a millionaire without kids, right? <laughs> there is a high cost of parenting. But you know what the highest cost, the greatest cost, is not the financial cost, is it? But could I remind you this morning what we get for that investment? Uh, first, we get naming rights. First, middle, and last name we get to name. But more seriously, we get a glimpse of God every day. Because the Bible says those children were made in the image of God. Our hearts get more love than they can possibly hold. 
We get a hand to hold. Sometimes it's a little sticky, but we get a hand to hold. We get a, a playmate sometimes, somebody to, to blow bubbles with, somebody to uh, watch football games, somebody to build sandcastles. And in my case, you get an endless source of sermon and message illustrations from them. As a parent, we have the privilege and the opportunity to raise a young man or a young woman to know and to love God and to help them become a light for God in their part of the world. We get the privilege of loving them without limits so that someday they, like you, will learn to love without counting the cost. It's an incredible privilege that we have to raise children. So that's why for the next few weeks I want to offer some parental guidance for our common journey of parenting. I want to explore some things that the Bible says about issues that I think all of us as parents commonly wrestle with. Because after all, James Dobson was right when he said, it is easier to shape a child than to rebuild an adult. The Bible says it something like this in the book of Proverbs, teach your children to choose the right path and when they are older, they will remain upon it. And I can tell you this morning as a parent, that is exactly what I want to see happen for my children. And I am confident as parents that you desire exactly the same thing. In the Old Testament of the Bible, there is a story about King David. King David ruled over the nation of Israel. He was a great king. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Prior to David becoming king, there was a guy named Saul who was king. And Saul ruled for a number of years and then he and his sons were killed and there was actually a period of time where the nation of Israel went without a king. It was a difficult time. There was some warfare with the Philistines. There were internal struggles. It was obvious that God had appointed that David would be king, but there were issues about him actually taking the throne. And at one point we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 that a group of people came together so that they could make David king, even if they had to do it by force. And in First Chronicles chapter 12, we find this list of people that come together to make David king. It's the normal kinds of things, most of it, that you would expect. Soldiers with sword, mighty warriors, people with great weapons. But then there is this one verse that sticks out, this one group of people who join in this effort to make David king. It's in verse 32, and it simply says this, from Issachar... Men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all of their relatives under their command. This group of guys didn't come with swords to do battle. They came with an understanding of the times and a willingness to act. You know what, parents? For us, there is more at stake than who will be king. The future of our children is at stake. And I think we would be wise to follow the example of these men in First Chronicles who had an understanding of the times. And once they understood the times, then they had a willingness to act based upon what was needed. And parents, I want to encourage us today that we need to understand the times. And once we understand the times that our children are living in, then we need to act based on that knowledge and their needs. So I want to spend some time today helping you to understand the times a bit. Now, a few disclaimers before I dive into that material. First, I have to tell you, this is not what we normally do around here, and actually it's not what I am most comfortable with. I am more comfortable with opening up the Bible, finding a section of Scripture, teaching from it, and pulling out the things that apply to our everyday lives. 
But today, I am primarily going to share with you a lot of information about our current generation so that we can do better at understanding the times. Secondly, I am going to make a lot of generalizations, but I want to assure you that I totally understand that not all children are the same and that not all of the things that I'm going to say today apply to all children all the time. Thirdly, I would say to our middle school and high school students who are in here today, you will probably walk away feeling like I was very negative about your generation. That is not my intention. If we were to talk about my generation, there would be plenty of bad things to say about it and plenty of positive things, just as there are plenty of negative things about your generation and lots of positive things that we could say. I simply want to paint a picture today so that maybe your moms and dads understand a little bit better the world that you live in. Finally, I want to say there is far more information than I can possibly share with you today. Most of what I'm going to share with you comes from a guy named Dr. Tim Elmore. Um, He leads a group called Growing Leaders, and I want to send you to his website if you would like to know more about the things that I'm sharing today. If you would visit growingleaders.com sometime this week, there is an incredible amount of information there that I think you will find very helpful as parents. Well, in general, who are we talking about? Children who were born between 1984 and the year 2001 have come to known as the millennial generation or the Y generation. Now, Dr. Elmore has coined a new phrase to describe this generation and those who would come immediately after them. He has called them the IY generation because of the impact of iTunes and iPhones and uh, the Internet and iChat and on and on the list goes of those kinds of things and because a lot of their world centers around I. Now, parents, I know some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, Jeff, my children were born after 2001, so does this stuff apply to them? And you know what? Um, One of my boys was born after that date as well. I would say absolutely As I have been studying these things over the past few weeks and reading a lot of material, I am very convinced that the children who come after the year 2001 will be equally, if not more greatly, impacted by the things that I'm going to share with you today. Because these things that we're going to talk about are even probably more prevalent to them than uh, kids who were born between 84 and 2001. I want to say it is a different world that we are dealing with. In fact, let me just kind of read off some things here that are true of the the IY generation. Uh, They were the first generation to be born into loves, huggies, and pampers. They were the first infants to ride in a car with signs that said, baby on board. How many of you can remember those, you know, and you had one of those for your kids? Uh, John Lennon and John Belushi have always been dead, as far as they're concerned. There have always been women on the Supreme Court, and there has always been travel in space. Uh, They never knew Madonna when she was like a virgin. The moonwalk is a Michael Jackson dance step, not a Neil Armstrong giant step. The term adult has come to mean something dirty to them. They have spent, and this is scary parents, they have spent more than half of their life with Bart Simpson. Yeah. Uh, President Kennedy's assassination is as relatively insignificant to them as Lincoln's. They have never feared a nuclear war. They have probably never dialed a phone. And the terms roll down your window and you sound like a broken record have to be explained to them. It's true if you think about it, isn't it? It is a different world. 
Uh, last summer, I traveled to Bulgaria. Great trip. We have some missions there that uh, Crosspoint supports, and we're involved in helping to spread the story of Jesus in that country. While I was there, I had numerous opportunities to sit down and have conversations with Bulgarian people. But I want to tell you, I realized something in every one of those conversations. When you speak a different language and you are from a different culture, that kind of conversation is absolutely exhausting because it takes an incredible amount of energy to try to communicate with each other, even with an interpreter. And uh, just the effort, you know, you just kind of walk away from those, even though you enjoy it and you love those people and you want to talk to them, you kind of walk away just feeling worn out from trying to talk to them. And parents, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I walk away from conversations with my kids, I sort of feel a little bit like that. Because we are communicating almost in a, seems like a different language sometimes. And we live in such different cultures. And sometimes it seems like we are foreign to each other. Now, they would say that we are foreigners in their world, and we would say that they are foreigners in our world. Whichever way you see it, we are very different. So I want to spend just a couple of minutes helping you to understand this IY generation. And as you'll see here in a second, I am not much of an artist at all. Oh, that's nice. But uh, let me draw this little stick figure here for you. Pressed so far? Oh, I can't even draw the hands right. Thanks, Bill. I'll show you my lack of athletic ability, too. There you go. All right, let me talk about this IY person, this uh, terrible stick figure. Here, I'll fix that for some of you so you'll feel better, okay? Okay, this terrible stick person. Let me first talk about how they think. How they think. This IY generation, they are media bored. By that I mean they are absolutely consumed by media. They are Their world is so image-rich, it is unbelievable. They live and exist in a world of iPhones and iPods and video games and computers and um, DVD players and television and movies. I mean, their world is filled with media. The result of that is they have this capacity to take in a far greater amount of information than we do. And they have an ability to process an incredible amount of visual stimuli all at the same time. It's not unusual for a, a, child, a student in the IY generation to be sitting on the couch listening to their iPod, watching television, doing their homework, and text messaging a friend all at the same time. And to a large extent... They have the capacity to keep track of all of that. They have given a new definition to the word multitasking. It is incredible. The average IY generation kid sees 35 movies to every one book that they read. Now, I am not anti-video games, okay? I am not. But it was interesting in my reading this week to discover that they have now, there is now a direct correlation in their studies between the amount of video games that students participate in and how they do in school. And students, I'm sorry to tell you, but the studies show that the more video games you play, the poorer you do in school. There are also studies that show that there is a rise in asthma based on the amount of video games that kids are playing. I have no idea what that's about exactly, but that study is out there. But the amount of media is absolutely amazing. 
It's also true that the, their ability, as I said earlier, to deal with visual stimuli is incredible. They, they are taking in so much information. They are cognitively very advanced. Because of the Internet, there is more information available to this generation than to any previous generation. And they are able to take all of this in. Like I said, too, the, the whole visual stimuli thing is absolutely incredible. I was watching, uh, last Sunday afternoon, I was watching an old classic basketball game on the Big Ten Network, and I'm sorry it wasn't an Ohio State game, otherwise I wouldn't have been watching it. But I want to show you a clip of this in a second, and I want you to watch this and notice how few visual stimuli are on the TV. This is just back from 1991, okay? And this, I'm going to show you this clip, but it was true throughout the whole game. Other than something that the Big Ten Network added in the upper left-hand corner, watch this clip. You notice that? Nothing on the screen besides the actual game. What a concept. Yeah, nothing. Now, I'm going to show you a clip from uh, ESPN News that we recorded this week, and I want you to notice the difference in the visual stimulation that happens on the screen in just this few seconds of clip. Here we go. Top, bottom, side panel, and the guys are talking to you. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? When I watch that, I've told my boys, when I watch that, I have to make a choice. I can either listen to what the guys are saying, or I can read the side panel. I can't do them both at the same time. But you know what they tell me, and I believe them? No problem for them. They can take in almost all of it at the same time because they absolutely think differently and their mind works differently than, I, than mine. Here's another truth about this generation. They, are, they view life as a cafeteria. Practically everything in life to them is a cafeteria. They think that they can pick and choose from, for everything in life. Whether it's for music, you know, they can go on iTunes and pick all these different artists, a song of his and a song here, and put it on their iPod and listen to it. But it rolls over into other areas of life, including their view of religion or Christianity. They think that religion is a cafeteria. You know, I can pick a little bit of Christianity, what the Bible says. And I can take this little bit of Hindu, and I can mix in this little bit of New Age, and I can package that all together, and that will be my religion. That will be how I view God. And there are really some frightening implications to that that we'll talk about next week in week two of this series. So that's how they think. Let me talk for a second about how they are physically. This generation is biologically very advanced. They are physically ahead of practically any generation in history. In fact, scientists will tell you that this generation of students reaches puberty a full one to two years earlier than a teenager 30 years ago. Now, I'm telling you, there are some big implications to that. And we're going to talk about the implications of that reality in their lives in week three of this series. As almost a side note, let me tell you something else I've discovered uh, in all of my reading for this that was very, very eye-opening to me. Very new studies so new that they're not to the point even of telling you what all the implications are. And I'm not sure I know what all the implications are, but I think it's something we as parents ought to be aware of. In very recent studies, scientists are discovering that the testosterone level in males of the current generation is half the testosterone levels of their grandparents. Catch that? That means the testosterone level in my sons 
is half the testosterone level of my father. Scientists suppose at this point, such new studies, they're not totally sure. They believe a lot of that is related to all of the chemicals that we're using in our culture today. But I have to believe there are some profound implications that we will begin to realize because of that drop in the testosterone level of males of this generation. Third thing, let me talk then for a second about how they relate to each other. This generation of students is incredibly socially connected. They are, in fact, very socially advanced. Do you hear that term that we keep coming back to, how they're advanced in so many things? They have this amazing ability to stay connected with their peers and even their family unlike any other generation because of technology. Because of cell phones, instant messaging, um, Facebook, MySpace, um, Skype, all kinds of technology that allows them to stay incredibly connected with their peers. Yet, at the same time, the reality is they are isolated. And why would I say that? Because a great deal of their social interaction happens through technology, not face-to-face. I mean, if you go into your kids' rooms, it is like the command center, you know? They are connected. They are incredibly connected, yet they are isolated. In fact, uh, the other night, my, one of my boys was uh, sitting on the couch asking what he was doing. He said to me, I am uh, instant messaging uh, a friend here locally, I, or I'm sorry, texting a friend here locally. I'm instant messaging with an old friend in Ohio, and I'm instant messaging with a girl in Bulgaria. All at the same time. It's incredible how connected they are. Yet, at the same time, they are very isolated. And the problem, parents, the result of this, their struggle will be, they have difficulty with people skills. They're not used to face-to-face conversations. And they especially struggle when the relationships get difficult. Because you know what they're used to doing when it gets relationally difficult? They just log off in the conversation. So parents, we have to model for them. We have to help them in this area know how to have face-to-face conversations and how to relationally navigate through difficult times because they are missing that skill. Another thing about how they relate kind of related to what I said earlier, they are global in their relations. They are connected to people all over the world, as I indicated with my son. You know, instant messaging somebody that he knows in Bulgaria. Some other things about how they relate, they are, they are team-oriented. That's why you see so many of them group dating, which is a good thing. We'll talk about that in week three of the series. They are very harmonious and they are incredibly generous, many of them. Great characteristics that are rising up out of this generation. Let me talk finally then about how they feel. That's a heart, just in case you can't tell. Let me talk about how they feel. Are the children in this culture are very um, sheltered, yet they are very pressured. We as parents have had a tendency to shelter them from a lot of life's harsh realities. In fact, someone has coined the phrase for some of us as parents, they have called us helicopter parents. 
because we have kind of hovered over our kids and any time we saw something coming up that was going to be a harsh reality, we have protected them from that. Let me give you some evidence of this, just a couple of stories that I read that are true. First of all, I read about a mother whose daughter went off to college her freshman year away from home. The mother phoned the president of the university one morning and said to the president, I was watching your local forecast today and I see that the temperature has dropped significantly. It's going to be kind of chilly. Could you make sure my daughter wears her sweater to class this morning? It's a true story. Uh, This lady thought the president of the university had nothing better to do than to make sure her daughter wore a sweater. Another similar story. A young lady, freshman year of college, she gets her first test back in in a course and she has done very poorly on the test. Before the professor can realize what's really going on, the girl is walking up with her cell phone saying to him, it's my mom, she'd like to talk to you about my grade. The mom was going to negotiate a better grade for her child. We protect them. You may think this is a bit of a soapbox, but I'll take that risk because I think it is evidence of how we've protected them. When it comes to youth sports, we have developed this mentality as parents that Everybody is a winner. You know, we get to the end of the season and every single kid gets a trophy. Even if they lost every game all year long, everybody is a winner. And maybe there's a good part to that, but you know what we've done? We haven't taught them that there are winners and losers in sports. And so the first time they come upon a harsh reality in life because we've protected them in so many ways, they don't know how to deal with it because we have so protected them. I have some other soapboxes about some high school sport things, but we can talk about those another time. Some other things about how they feel. They are very uh, pressured at the same time that we have sheltered them. And here's how they are pressured. They are pressured by us as parents and by their peers to succeed. They feel a lot of pressure to get the grades, to get the scholarship, to get into the right school, to be on the right teams. So while we have sheltered them at the same time, we have often pressured them. We've contributed to this mentality that they have of feeling pressured sometimes by how much activity we've pushed them to be a part of. We run them from event to event to event to event because we are afraid that other kids will somehow get ahead of them if they don't participate in all of these things early on. And we've resulted in making our kids feel pressured to achieve. So they are sheltered, yet at the same time they are pressured. Now let me tell you another thing about how they feel. You know, I've talked about all these things where they are very advanced and they are. It's incredible. There is one area where they are behind other generations. And that's when it comes to their emotional maturity. In fact, Dr. Elmore would say they are emotionally far behind or backward or he even goes so far as to use the word they are emotionally retarded. Now, emotional intelligence has to do with things like um, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship management. It's things like people skills. It's like having an understanding of, of how you're presenting yourself and how you're being received by somebody else. And oftentimes, they are emotionally behind where they ought to be. Let me give you a couple evidences of this. It would not be unusual for a young person in this generation to decide they were going to break up with their girlfriend or their boyfriend and do it by a text message. Or another illustration of this. Studies show us that 60% of college graduates over the last few years are going back home. 
many of them, because they are not emotionally ready to really deal with life, and so they go back to the safety and security of the shelter at home. Now, that's, not, I don't, that's a very generalization. There are many college students that go back home for different reasons, but for some cases, it's an evidence of this fact that they are emotionally behind. There are some huge implications to that that really will, will have an impact on all three of the things we want to talk about over the course of the next few weeks. Well, that is a very, very general overview of all of these things about these kids. Over the next three weeks, what we're going to do then is to dive into the Bible and see what it has to say about some common issues that we deal with in this context then of understanding the times and understanding our kids and figuring out how do we take those biblical truths and apply them to their lives in a way that they can understand and relate to. Let me close with a couple of challenges for all of us as parents. First, there, there is a difference between a mirror and a portrait, right? That's obvious. If you stand in front of a mirror, you see a reflection of whatever's in front of it, yourself, or if I held it up here today to the crowd, you'd see a reflection of yourselves. If I held up a portrait of someone, there would be no reflection, would there? There would simply be that fixed image of whoever the person is. I think as parents sometimes we are tempted to think that we need to be a mirror of our culture that we need to just be a reflection of everything that's going on in our culture and that everything is okay. But that's not true. The reality is, as a parent, I need to hold up for my kids a portrait. And I would say that that portrait, that image that we have to point them towards, is the image of Jesus. And we've got to be very clearly modeling for them and saying to them in their lives, this is what your life ought to look like. And in fact, tomorrow, your life ought to be more like the image of Jesus than it was today. But parents, for that to be true, it has to be true in our lives. The image of us has to be more like Jesus today than it was yesterday. There's a great verse in the New Testament where Paul, who was a leader in the ancient church, is writing to a young leader in a small church. His name was Timothy. And he writes this to Timothy, and he says, as an encouragement to Timothy of the kind of example that he ought to be, he says, set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Parents, it would not be a stretch at all for us to take that verse and take it to heart as something that ought to be true in our example to our children. In fact, maybe you ought to go home and write down that verse somewhere on a card where you can see it regularly, and you ought to say, you ought to set an example for your children in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. second challenge, parents, that I would have for you today as we get started in this series is communicate, 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 communicate. Not lecture, communicate. Communication is a two-way street, and it involves a lot of listening. And sometimes, parents, We've been guilty of just lecturing and not really hearing our children. And so as we begin, I would challenge you, we need to learn to communicate with our children. We need to hear what's really going on in their lives and understand the struggles of their times and then speak the truth into their lives and point them to an image of Jesus. In your uh, weekly update today, there is a... Uh, parenting dare that looks like this. And I want to encourage you, there'll be one of these each week during the series. So I want to encourage you to take this home with you today. It's a way to kind of live this out throughout the week. Inside of here you'll find 
five days. We just did five out of the seven days. And I want to encourage you over the course of the next week, five days, to sit down and I've written just a a little uh, thing for you to think about there. And then I've given you a challenge for that day. And I want to encourage you parents to kind of take that challenge. It will allow you some time with your kids to really invest in them for that kind of communication to happen and for you to work at really understanding the times that your child is living in. Parents, let me ask you to do this then as we get ready to close. If you're a parent this morning of a child of any age, would you stand right now? If you're the parent of a child of any age, would you stand? First, I want to say God bless you for what you're doing and I want to pray God's blessing on you right now as a parent. God, I I thank you for those who are standing. I thank you, God, for the incredible responsibility and privilege that you have given them as parents. And God, I want to ask you to bless their lives in a very special way right now in this moment. God, would you give them what they need to be the parents that you've called them to be? God, would you give them the patience? Would you give them the communication skills? God, would you today help them to really deeply understand the culture that our children live in? So that, Father, as they understand the times, they could meet the needs of their children. God, in every way, would you just bless them? God, I ask you to use these next few weeks. I pray that you would bring us all back together each of the weeks as we talk about very important issues. And God, at the end of the time, that you would have worked through that time to make us into who you want us to be. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus.